Hi, I'm Paul Blum. I'm Francis Aguisanda. And I'm Ray Fuchsia. And welcome to Benchtime Stories, a podcast where Stanford graduate students tell you stories of scientific discoveries from where the hard work actually happens, the lab bench. Here, we follow discoveries from their inception to their fruition. Today's story is really a story of bench to bedside. Every day, millions of people around the world take medication for a variety of ailments. From curing our headaches to keeping our immune systems in check, we rely on man-made drugs of all kinds to help maintain our health. But what is a drug, and how do they come to be? How do we use discoveries that scientists make in the laboratory to design drugs for an ever-evolving list of diseases and disorders? On today's episode, we're going to talk about a drug called Gleevec, which revolutionized the way in which we treat cancer. We'll start with how a curious accident in the lab gave an important clue to how a specific cancer works. We'll also talk about how that important discovery allowed scientists to design a drug to treat this deadly cancer. The story of Gleevec starts in 1959 with a curious genetic abnormality discovered by two biologists, David Hungerford and Peter Noel. Peter Noel, a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, was studying cells from patients with leukemia. As he was processing the cells on glass microscope slides, he accidentally washed the slides with tap water instead of the proper solution. Now that seems really bad because if there's more salt inside the cells than outside, the water would rush in and wouldn't that cause the cells to swell up? Exactly, it's osmosis. And it's very bad for the cells, especially if these are cells in your body. But remember, these are cells on a glass slide. And what it does is it makes the DNA easier to see. Well, DNA is too small to see by itself, but when it's bundled up in a chromosome, the bigger sort of DNA globs, you can see it on a slide, especially when it swells up like this. But at the time, chromosomes were not well understood, and no one even really knew that they had any connection to cancer. So this could be a really useful tool, but Noel wasn't a chromosome guy. He said later, I don't know anything about chromosomes, but it seemed a shame to throw this away. Noel could have completely disregarded this cool effect, and no one would have blamed him. But he was curious, so he pursued it. And in doing so, he partnered with a graduate student at the Fox Chase Center in Philadelphia, David Hungerford, to help him study the chromosomes that were in these leukemic cells. Hungerford looked at many of the chromosomes, and he noticed that in many of the leukemic cells, chromosome 22 was abnormally freakishly tiny, much smaller than all the others. All this went down in Philadelphia, so the abnormal chromosome was dubbed the Philadelphia chromosome. Really, this was one of the first examples ever discovered of a genetic abnormality in cancer cells potentially associated with the cancer itself. And yes, 1959 might seem like a really long time to go back when you're talking about this sort of relatively modern cancer drug, Levic. But it's important to note that drug development tends to take many years, requires much discovery in the lab, before development of the actual molecule that becomes the drug actually even begins. So while the Philadelphia chromosome was discovered back in 1959, no one knew what role it played in cancer or what it even was. It wasn't until 1973 that Dr. Janet Rowley of the University of Chicago discovered that this abnormal chromosome was the result of a translocation between chromosomes 9 and 22. Okay, so Francis, what is a translocation? Well, Paul, if you break down the word, it's actually exactly what it sounds like. So trans refers to across or between, like transatlantic. And location refers to the location. So when we're talking about chromosomes, this means that two different locations on two different chromosomes have been swapped. And the case of the Philadelphia chromosome, a piece of chromosome 9 actually broke off and reattached itself to chromosome 22. 
So where does this get us? Well, in the 1980s, scientists at the National Cancer Institute in Maryland determined that the translocation creating the Philadelphia chromosome resulted in the fusion of two genes, BCR and ABL, that created a new gene, creatively called BCR-ABL. At least it describes what it is. It describes exactly what it is. And uh, in 1986, Dr. Owen Witte and his lab at UCLA discovered that this fusion gene promotes uncontrolled cell growth of white blood cells. The cells don't get big, they just divide too much, causing a specific type of leukemia called chronic myelogenous leukemia, or CML for short. So, I mean, this story started in the 50s, now we're in the late 1980s. So what was the state of the sort of disease at this time? Well, at this time, before Gleevec was developed, less than one in three CML patients survived five years past diagnosis. They're pretty grim. But in 1990, a team from Witte's lab, headed by Tracy Lugo, a student at the time, published a paper in Science that united all these discoveries. It demonstrated that the uncontrolled growth associated with the Philadelphia chromosome in CML patients was the result of the fusion gene BCR-ABL. In that paper from 1990, they also demonstrated that this gene was acting as an abnormally active kinase. Kinases are enzymes, meaning that they're proteins that promote chemical reactions to take place in the body. Now, people often talk about proteins like they're a singular substance, like cement. But actually, proteins are unique, separate molecules. Each one is a specific component coded for by its own gene, which is a chunk of DNA. Proteins can be structural components, like the ones that make up your hair, while others can be motors that move things, like moving your muscles. And others yet are enzymes that, like I said, make chemical reactions go. And with all of this complexity afforded by all of these different proteins, there must be some way to organize it all so that a cell can respond to its environment. And that's where kinases and cell signaling come in. Cell signaling is like a game of telephone inside your cells. A cell receptor receives an outside message from the environment, like there's a nasty chemical here, or there's lots of nutrients, so let's grow. Then the message gets sent to other proteins, which in turn forward this message to even more proteins. Eventually, a final protein does the desired action to respond to the original stimulus. Kinases, like BCR-ABL, make up most of these cell signaling cascades, this game of telephone. Like I said, they're enzymes, and they activate these proteins, effectively relaying the message down the line, and eventually activating the protein that performs the task at hand. You can think of this like a giant, or rather very, very tiny, complex Rube Goldberg machine, if you know of those. And like a Rube Goldberg machine, the initial stimulus or trigger can be greatly amplified and branch out into accomplishing many different tasks. Witte's lab figured out that the BCR part of BCR-ABL is normally a kinase that responds to growth signals, the it's-time-to-grow message, and is part of a signaling pathway that encourages cell division, or uncontrolled growth, in white blood cells. Adding ABL to BCR turns it into something a bit different. The BCR's part still carries the signal of growth, but it's now always on, always activating proteins, and telling the cell to grow, even when there's no growth signal and the growth is unneeded. Instead of researching CML to discover the cause of the disease, the cause itself was studied first, and this led scientists to the disease. Therefore, the scientific community then knew that if they could figure out exactly how to decrease the activity of this enzyme, they could effectively treat this type of leukemia. 
But how exactly does this lead to a drug? Well, creating a drug normally takes place in four main parts or stages. Stage 1, Discovery and Development, where a particular biological mechanism is discovered and molecules are screened to target it. This encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about so far. Stage 2, Preclinical Research, where the proposed drug is tested in model organisms to see if it does what it's predicted to do. Stage 3, Clinical Research, where the proposed drug is tested in humans. Then, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, reviews it. And finally, stage four, the FDA post-market safety monitoring. This is important because even if a drug makes it to market, the FDA still keeps an eye on it and makes sure it's not having any adverse effects. And this general workflow is still followed today. But up until the 1990s, the discovery and development of cancer drugs focused on creating chemicals to slow DNA synthesis and cell division. The idea being that stopping the growth of all cells would also stop the growth of cancer cells. Several chemicals would be tested in small cancer models on a cellular scale, like cells in a dish, in what we call chemical screens, to see if any of the chemicals had the potential to kill cancerous cells, with less emphasis on the particular disease involved or the human system that the drug would eventually be deployed in. This sort of chemotherapy would take a major toll on the patient's health, but did have the potential to kill the cancer. And for some cancers, this is still used. The discovery of cancer-causing genes, later called oncogenes, represented a radical departure. All of a sudden, genes were identified that were uniquely associated with cancerous cells. This was the case for Gleevec. In 1993, Dr. Nicholas Leiden, head of a drug discovery group at the pharmaceutical company Sibagaygi, approached Dr. Brian Drucker of Oregon Health and Science University, who had been researching kinases, to attempt to design a drug that could treat CML. Drucker's lab used their knowledge of the BCR-ABL kinase to guide Leiden's group in designing and creating chemicals to inactivate that kinase. Drucker's lab then screened these chemicals to see which could inactivate BCR-ABL in cells and dishes to effectively target and kill the CML cells. Eventually, they found one compound, then called STI-571, that was more effective than the others. And after further testing in cells and animals, they varied this compound structure in different ways to improve its efficiency, solubility, and effectiveness by oral administration. The compound eventually became known as imatinib, and its trade name, of course, is Gleevec. Follow-up studies showed that Gleevec inhibits BCR-ABL by binding to its inactive form and locking it in this state, essentially preventing it from activating. In the first human trials, imatinib consistently restored patients' normal blood counts and it was later shown to perform well in both initial and advanced stages of CML. Now, most cases of CML can be controlled, thanks to Gleevec. CML patients whose disease is in remission after two years of Gleevec treatment have the same life expectancy as those who never had the disease. The development of drugs that target kinases, kinase inhibitors, led to the breakthrough treatment of CML and a number of other cancers. 30% of all newly approved drugs are kinase inhibitors, and as of 2015, there are 60 approved and 140 in clinical trials. Fusion genes like BCR-ABL are now implicated in a wide variety of cancers, and the overproduction of other kinases and other molecules that prompt uncontrolled cell division is a common theme. Some of the cancers associated with such damaged genes have actually responded to Gleevec and other kinase inhibitors. So really, the development of Gleevec taught scientists that understanding the specific biology of a disease can lead to better cancer treatments, or even a cure. 
This style of creating a drug by targeting a specific molecular mechanism associated with the disease is commonly used to make drugs today. Recent approaches target kinases and other proteins even more specifically by using their DNA sequence to computationally predict what kind of drugs would inhibit those proteins. Gleevec illustrates what's possible when basic science is pursued and when collaboration and research can be performed using the resulting insight. Thanks for joining us. I'm Paul Bump. I'm Francis Agisanda. And I'm Ray Fuchsia. This has been Benchtime Stories. Recorded at Stanford KZSU 90.1 FM.